All right, you could turn in your Bibles to the book of Haggai, if you can find that one. It's the, uh, near the end of the Old Testament. You have Haggai, Zechariah, and then Malachi, and then boom, you're in the New Testament. So just go near to the end, you'll find this. We, we began a study of Haggai last week. Uh, he is one of uh, the three prophets of the Restoration period that came after Judah was taken into captivity in Babylon. They were held there as uh, captives for 70 years um, until they were released. Uh, When 70 years were completed by King Cyrus by a decree that he issued. And last week we gave a whole history lesson on that. I say we because I did have a lot of help from the younger people to give that history lesson. So I won't give that today. If you need to, to catch up on that, you can go online and watch it on Facebook or you can listen to it on our on our website, but 50,000 Jews left Babylon after being in captivity for 70 years. They traveled 1,600 miles back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. That was the command given by King Cyrus, a pagan, a pagan king, the king of the Persians. Um, and so they responded. They had a great number of people respond to this. They had wealth, uh, money from the king, money they had donated themselves to go and rebuild the temple. And they come back to the land, and as soon as they finished laying the foundation, they got the foundation uh, laid, they were were met with resistance from their their neighboring uh, enemies. And uh, then that resistance went to the king, and by then the king was King uh, Darius, and uh, that that king decided to, um, or or, sorry, King Artaxerxes, and got a command given to them to stop building, stop building the temple. And so they were discouraged, they were Uh, disillusioned here. God had finally come back to them, responded to them, brought them back to this this land to rebuild the temple. And boy, it all gets shut down. And so they they stop building. They focus instead on building homes for themselves and starting a new life there. And the temple foundation remains untouched for 15 or 16 years. And so Haggai is a prophet sent during that time to motivate them, to renew their efforts, to continue construction. And Haggai gives four messages in this very small book here. And last week, we looked at the first message. And just to briefly recap, if you look at chapter one of Haggai, the first message was, consider your ways. And in verse four, he said this, it is, uh, sorry, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. They had left the work of God to focus on their own work. And, and so they came up with their own excuse. Oh, it's just not time, right? Uh, and time is a big excuse for a lot of us. And it was their excuse. And so God is saying, no, that's not the excuse we're going to use. You need to consider your ways. Look at what you're doing in your life. And as he causes them to do that, they can see that their life has not been well, that they've been trying to get ahead, but they've been really unsuccessful in doing so. And God reveals to them why that has been, that he has actually been actively chastising them, even though they were unaware of that. And he did that by really just withdrawing his blessing. See, the favor of God goes upon the righteous. You can read about that all through the Psalms. I did an exercise on highlighting how many times God uh, puts his favor or blessing upon the righteous in Psalms. My, My Psalms is just highlighted all over the place because he does look upon his people with favor. He extends blessing uh, to them. But when they're in sin, he removes blessing. And that's what he had done uh, to them. And so they were suffering economic depression. 
And in verse 9, he kind of reveals that. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts, because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. So they're, they're understanding now that they've been under discipline that they need to turn from their ways. And in, in verse 12, we find out that because of Haggai's message, his faithfulness to them, they respond. And in verse 12, it says this, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shetil, he's the governor, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai, the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the presence of the Lord. They respond with obedience, and they respond with a reverent fear of, of God. So here you have a people who now finally come back. They're, they're being encouraged once again to work on the house of the Lord. And we're told in the end of the chapter on, on verse 15 that on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius, they came together and they resumed building. And that's 23 days later. So not a bad turn from, uh, from Haggai's message, not a bad response. Now, this brings us to chapter 2, Haggai's second message. But before we jump into it, um, I I do want to explain some things. I want to talk about the dates here because they're going to become very important. Because the second chapter begins uh, with this, in the seventh month. In the seventh month. And we can't look at this and and think about about it in uh, English terms, right? What's the seventh month for us? We go, okay, July. It's not the month of July, uh, for them. Uh, for them, it would have been between September and October. It's a Jewish calendar that we're talking about. And I have a picture here just to show you. I can get it up here. So here is the seventh month. It's a little white seven. You can't quite see it, but I'm just bringing your attention to it down here. And I have a close-up of it. You can bring the close-up. All right, so here it is, the month of Tishri. Tishri, okay. And down here on the outside of this wheel, they have all the... Um, festivals and feasts that they are supposed to be um, operating or observing during these months. And down here, you can see there is the festival or feast of booths. It's also known as the feast of tabernacles there. All right. And that's really going to be quite, uh, quite important because it comes into play in Haggai's message uh, here. So just keep that, keep that in mind. So they're in the seventh month by the time we come to chapter two. So it's been a month later. How, what has Haggai been doing during this time? Well, if you remember from last week, we began our study actually not in the book of Haggai, but in the book of Ezra. And that's because the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are two historical books that talk about the same time period. And that fact, they mention Haggai, the prophet, and they mention Zechariah. And it recounts the initial work of laying the foundation uh, it account, uh, kind of recounts the opposition from their opponents and the eventual order to cease the construction. And if you want to turn back to Ezra, you got to go way back to uh, the Old Testament again. You're going to see First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, and then there's Ezra. This little book tucked in there. And we looked at the first four chapters, just briefly highlighting some verses to kind of uh, show how all those steps have taken place, and then. In, Chapter 5, Haggai and Zechariah are introduced because the temple, they've had to stop building on it because of the order from King Artaxerxes. In chapter 5, verse 1, we're told this, Then the prophet, of, uh, prophet Haggai and the Zechariah, the son of Idu, prophets, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. So Zerubbabel, 
the son of Shetil, and Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, rose up and began to build the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, helping them. So here we find out that Haggai and Zechariah actually were part, uh, part of helping the rebuilding of the temple. They joined in. But what you have to remember is that there's 15 or 16 uh, years uh, gap between the end of chapter 4 of Ezra and the beginning of chapter 5. That, that temple has been laid empty, and Haggai comes along, and Zechariah uh, comes along to get them to rebuild. It's been a, a, there's a big gap of time there, all right? So imagine coming back after 15, 16 years, picking up the tools again and starting to work again. Don't you think you'd start to get the attention of the locals once again? That's exactly what happens in chapter 5. Tatanai is the go- governor in the local area. He hears about all this work being resumed. And so chapter 5 kind of talks about him coming and saying, well, who, who, hold on, who gave you permission to start doing all this work? And so the people told them the story. He said, well, there was this king, King Cyrus, and he gave a decree, right? And, and we were told that we can come and rebuild it. And he gave them all the details. And in chapter 5, this Tetaniah decides to write to the king. And at this time, it's King Darius. To write to the king and say, okay, these people have started working they say this and this and this, right? It was King Cyrus. It was a decree and, and all this. And I just want to draw your attention to verse 17 because he's very wise, right? He writes to the king and in verse 17 of chapter 5. He says, now, therefore, if it seems good to the king, let a search be made in the king's treasure house, which is there in Babylon, where, whether it is so that a decree was issued by King Cyrus to build this house of God at Jerusalem and let the king send us his pleasure concerning this matter. So very simply stated, I want proof, right? Search for proof. Is there such a decree? Go into your records. Did, did King Cyrus do such a thing, right? So before we unveil that, um, this, I believe, is the period of time that the people have, they begun rebuilding, right? But it looks like all the same things are starting to happen again, right? We've gotten the attention of the governor, right? The authorities. And now it's going to the king. And oh, now they're going to go through this again. It's almost like, here we go again, Right? We've got a prophet. He's encouraged us to build, but now it's going right back to the king. And so they quickly become discouraged again. And so Haggai's second message here to the people is essentially a message of encouragement, okay? They're already discouraged. They just started building this, and it's a message of encouragement. Get back to it. It's okay. Don't worry about these things. So go back to the book of Haggai here as you look at this, all right? Haggai's second message really is a message that reminds them of the past promises of God, but also the future plans. And that's kind of what I titled today's message, Past Promises, Future Plans. Let's look at the passage. We're just looking at his second message, which comes in chapter 2 of Haggai, verses 1 through 9. In the seventh month, on the 21st of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shetil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now in comparison with it? Is this not in your eyes as nothing? Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. 
For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and they shall come to the desire of all nations. And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, says the Lord of hosts. Lord, we thank you for your word to us today. Lord, the word of Haggai, the prophet, speaking for, for you many, many, many years ago. And Lord, I pray, Lord, that your spirit would be with us today, because as your spirit uh, spoke to the people then, your spirit can speak to us today. Lord, I pray that you encourage us as you did then, uh, those people who were discouraged and disillusioned, maybe given into fear, Lord, that you encourage us by the words of Haggai here, Lord, with the truths that he speaks of, the former, uh, the, the past uh, promises, but also the future plans that you have for them, but also the, the past promises that apply to us and the future plans that you have for us. Lord, may we just be encouraged by your word to us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's look at this. We begin by seeing the discouragement of the people. In verse 1, uh, the seventh month, on the 21st of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. And I said that this day and this month was important because it landed um, uh, at, at, in that month of Tishri between September and October. But it lands on the 21st day of the month. That would have been at the very, very end of the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, you have to remember, these people have been in captivity for 70 years. They've come back to rebuild the temple, and now they've just been sort of laying around and doing their own things. They've really forgotten about all those things they used to do as Jewish people that they identify with, like observing the feasts, right? And I, we know this because when you go back to Nehemiah, you know, I actually mentioned Nehemiah this week to my, my son, and I would jokingly said, yeah, Nehemiah, the second uh, shortest man in the Bible, Nehemiah. Yeah, and my wife hates it when I do these jokes. She says, second shortest man? I said, yeah, he's second only to Bildad the Shuhite found in Job. So just so you know, I got to fit him in where I can, folks. I got to fit him in where I can. But in the book of Nehemiah, uh, in chapter 8, Ezra comes to the congregation and he reads to them the book of the law. Now, they have not been accustomed to hearing the book of the law. They have not been accustomed to hearing God's word. He reads to them from morning to midday, all right? And when he's reading this, they discover something that they've been missing. And I'll just let you see it for yourself on the screen. Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 14 to 15. And they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month. That's the month we're in. And that they should announce and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the mountain and bring olive branches, branches of oil trees, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of leafy trees, to make booths, as it is written. So there in Nehemiah, which takes place quite a bit later, um, as uh, in Ezra, they're focused on even building the walls at that, that point, they had forgotten all about this festival, this Feast of Booths, that we're supposed to go and actually make little sort of tents out of branches and stuff and live in them, which is a crazy thing. Could you imagine what kind of attention you get from doing that, right? And so, at this period of time, when this message from Haggai is coming to them, they should be dwelling in booths. But what are they dwelling in? Nice paneled houses. You remember that? Right? Why are you dwelling in paneled houses when my house remains a mess? And by the way, it's the Sabbath month. You probably should be dwelling in booths, obeying my word. Right? Sticking to this. 
So that's a significant thing I don't want us to miss. It's significant for another reason. It was actually during the Feast of Booths that the original temple, King Solomon's temple, was dedicated to the Lord. Okay, And you can read about that in 1 Kings 8. But we're told there that all the men of Israel, they had all gathered together. They all assembled and were told in the seventh month. And they came together in that time to dedicate that first temple, that glorious temple of Solomon, to the Lord. So this, the significance of the timing of this message is important, okay? I don't want you to miss the seventh month. That's just not giving us a date for nothing. It's important. Now look at verses 2 and 3. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shatil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now in comparison with it? Is this not in your eyes as nothing? Now, this is important. God, God knows exactly what the people are, are feeling here, right? You have people that are discouraged because they're, some of them are relating this. Oh, it's the seventh month, the Feast of Booth. Oh, yeah. Some of them are old enough to remember. They're old enough to remember that, that, that former temple. Right? And how glorious it was. And God is looking at that saying, yeah, you're kind of, some of you are looking at this going, what is this? What have we just made? This is nothing compared to what you did before. And we also know this not just because I'm telling you, but because the book of Ezra records it. In Ezra chapter 3, verse 12, it says this, But many of the priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard afar off. You see what's happened here, right? You've got old people who who have been part of the work, and the work has been laid, and they aren't happy about it. They are only remembering the first temple, right? And they're, they're focused on the glory of that temple. And this is puny and worthless to them. But you have young people who don't remember that at all. Maybe they were born in captivity, right? And they are excited. The Lord is doing a new work. Look at this foundation. So people are screaming for joy and people are weeping aloud and they couldn't discern one from the other, right? Both going on. You know, I think a lot of times we do that. We compare the glorious church ages between one, between the other, right? Oh, the period of the Reformation, Right? When, when doctrines like the justification by faith doctrine was sweeping across Europe. Oh, wish we had the Martin Luthers of our day, right? Or maybe you're looking at the Great Awakenings. You think about Whitfields and the Wesleys, right? And amazing, where are those guys? You know, we do a lot here. I hear it a lot of times. The Welsh revivals, right? What about the glory days of the Welsh revivals? What's happening? What are we doing? We're going, well, God really did a work then. Yeah, he did a work then. And listen, God is recognizing it even here. He's like, yes, you're right. When you compare that to what's happening now, it doesn't look like much. This doesn't look like a big, a big deal. But what does God want them to do? He wants them to do the work. Why? Because it still is the work of the Lord. And any work of the Lord is a worthwhile task. And I think we can do that even just in churches. We can compare, look at the glory of that church. Look at the ministries that they have. Look at the funds that they have and the resources. Like, that's amazing. Ah, that's great, great. What's the work the Lord's doing here? Look here. Maybe you do it even personally. Maybe you look at yourself and go, well, I'm not like that person. That person is a spiritual giant. Like, obviously, what is the work the Lord's doing in your heart? Don't focus about the past glories. What is God doing now? Right? And that's what he's trying to do with the people. And I love that God acknowledges it. I love that he says, some of you are, are thinking about the old temple. Some of you are doing it. 
And to you, this looks like nothing, doesn't it? We do that. It's just human, human nature. And so he says, yes, you're right. This restored foundation, this building, you can't really compare it with the splendor of Solomon's temple, but it's still my house. It's still my work, and it's still for my glory, so I still want you to do it. And so the Lord gives them these words of encouragement through the mouth of Haggai to continue the work. And here they come to us in verse 4. Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord, and be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord, and work, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is encouragement that God is giving them from promises in the past. My spirit is with you. But first notice that he says, just be strong. And then he says why or or really how they can be strong. And the first thing he says, for I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. Now, I haven't talked about that phrase, Lord of hosts, up to this point, it's kind of saving it till we got to it here. Because Lord of hosts, and we actually, you know, are singing to that Lord of hosts, by the way, when we worship him. When we read from 1 Samuel today, David used that phrase about Goliath defying the Lord of hosts. And, and it's used 14 times in, in this small little book of Haggai. Five times it was used in chapter 1. Maybe you didn't even notice it, right? Back here in chapter 2, it's used nine Nine times, and six of those times is just in this speech that we're looking at here. He says it over and over again, Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. Host is even used of of the universe, right? And the sun and the moon and the stars. It's a reminder that he is the Lord of everything. So if that Lord is with you, do you have anything to fear? You have nothing to fear. Lord of hosts, I love that. I am with you. And this truth is so important. He says, it's according to the word that I covenanted with you. I want to take us back to that. When did he covenant or promise um, to be with them? It goes way back to Exodus 29, verses 45 to 46. He said, I will dwell among the children of Israel and be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who brought them up out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. That's the covenanted promise that he would be their God, that he would dwell with them. And because he's doing that, he would know, they would know that, that he's the God that brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of captivity. Now, God promised that he would be with his people and being with them, he would be a source of strength, right? A source of, of power. Um, and, and that's the point here. Be strong, he says to Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel is the governor here, and we'll learn more about Zerubbabel when we get to the end of this book. Be strong, uh, Zerubbabel. It's actually a threefold um, exhortation to be strong. He says it to Zerubbabel, and then he says it to the high priest Joshua, and then he says it to the, the, the remnant of the people. Three times right there, right? Be strong to you, to the priest, be strong to the people, all of them, be strong. And that is, that is on purpose, threefold promise or exhortation uh, to be strengthened is something we see throughout Scripture. Now, um, this is taking place during what should have been the Feast of Booth. Remember that? They're not doing it, but it should have been during that time. Well, if you think about during the Feast of Booths, go way back to that. During that time, the Jews would have Scripture read to them. Okay, one of the 
passages they would read to them was Deuteronomy chapter 31. And I want to take you there because I want you to see it. In Deuteronomy 31, so go way back to um, the Pentateuch. That's the first five books of the Bible, right? It's the fifth one. Or the Torah, that's the books of the law. Books of Moses, known by many of those things. Deuteronomy 31, all right, is being read to the, the people. And I want you to see what this contained. Now, in Deuteronomy we learn that the, the Israelites are on the border of the promised land. They're about to go in and conquer the land. And Moses is handing over the reins of leadership to his general Joshua. Because Moses is not allowed to go into the promised land, right? So he's going to hand that over to Joshua. And so since he's doing that, and remember, that's a different Joshua than the book of Haggai is talking about. That's Joshua the high priest. This Joshua, many years earlier, this is Joshua the general, the conqueror, all right? Um, this Joshua is going to get a threefold exhortation to be strengthened, and it comes from the mouth of Moses. Look at chapter 31, verse 6. Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them, for the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you, and he will not leave you nor forsake you. You see that? Okay, and then that's to the people. Then he goes to to Joshua in verse 7. Moses called Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and of good courage, for you must go with this people to the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall cause them them to inherit it. And then he goes again, that he's going to be with you and he won't leave you or forsake you. And you skip ahead. This is all the same speech to verse 23. Again, the third time, he inaugurated Joshua the son of Nun and said, Be strong and of good courage. Courage. You see that? Three, threefold exhortation to be strong. I, why? I'm going to be with you. Now, Moses dies, right? Joshua leads the people of Israel into, or begins to, to lead them into the promised land. And when you turn the page and go to the book of Joshua, the Lord comes to Joshua. And what does he do? He does the same thing. Joshua chapter 1, verse 6 Be strong and of good courage. For to this people you shall divide as the inheritance the the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you to do. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. And then verse 9, the third time, have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Three times, once again, to to Joshua. There's yet another example when uh, David is, uh, is charging his son to build that temple, to build that first uh, temple. And three times he encourages him to be strong. We're not going to read all three, but I'll show you the third one, what he says in here. It's First Chronicles chapter 28, verse 20. David said to his son Solomon, Be strong and of good courage and do it. Do not fear nor be dismayed. For the Lord God, my God, will be with you, and he will not leave you nor forsake you until you have finished all the work for the service of the house of the Lord. Do you see, this is extremely significant. It's not just an empty phrase. This phrase was an important part of Jewish history, the threefold exhortation to be strong, to be strengthened them. And Haggai is reminding that, that people here today, be strong, three times, right? Now, we sort of looked at this uh, last week, but if you look back ahead to chapter 1, verse 14, returning to Haggai, um, we read this, this wonderful little bit of how the people responded. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. Remember, their spirits were, were stirred up. Do you remember what stirred their spirits up? It's found in the verse prior to that, verse 13. It was that message, I am with you, 
says the Lord, right? I am with you. And we, we looked at that. We said, you know, Jesus said the same thing to us, right? Lo, I am with you to the end of the age. And we should find encouragement to, in that. He said the same thing to his disciples even prior to that, right? I won't leave you orphans, right? I won't leave you orphans. I won't forsake you. I'll come uh, to you. Well, for us today, how do, we, how do we interpolate that? We know that the Holy Spirit lives in us, right? And Paul in Ephesians 6 is going through the, the armor of God in that section, isn't he, right? In Ephesians 6.10, he says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Right? The armor is, is the idea that everything is spiritualized. Right? It all belongs to him. None of it is anything I have. Right? Oh, I better put this on because, boy, this will protect me. It is all the Lord's. We are only strong in his strength that is in the Lord. We only have power of his might, right? according to that verse. So it is the actual presence of God that makes us strong. And as Christians, uh, maybe sometimes we fall into the traps of, oh, just try harder, you know, uh, buck up, <laughs> you know, give it, give it your best shot. But when it comes to the tasks that we are given spiritually, we're just not up to the spiritual tasks. You cannot do it on your own strength, right? People have problems with certain besetting sins. You cannot do it on your own strength. You can't go to someone and say, oh, I just need to try harder. It will never, ever work. You must trust in the strength of the Lord and the power of his might. And listen, there is a wonderful example of this in the very next book, Zechariah. And I was reminded of this because we were at the pastor's conference a, a week ago, and Pastor Phil Vickery talked about Zechariah's vision in chapter 4. Zechariah has given a bunch of different visions, but I want to draw your attention to, to Zechariah's vision in chapter 4, uh, uh, the very, very next book. It's this wonderful vision um, that he has of this great golden lampstand, all right? This menorah, whatever you want to call it, this, this candlestick, okay? And, and it's got this giant golden bowl on top. And these seven pipes are coming down from the bowl into this lampstand. And this bowl is filled with all this golden oil. And all this oil is running down and into these pipes and fueling this lampstand, which is continually lighting, okay? This is the vision that he, he gives. And he's asking God uh, about it. But, but next to that lampstand, there's these two olive trees, and the olive trees are, are dripping into receptacles that filter into that golden bowl and are fueling that. And we've got a great picture, I think. Someone just drew of their idea of what that would look like, right? This is, it's, it's a vision. It's an illustration uh, there. But, but the idea is that the, um, the, the, the lamp, let me just read something that I thought was really interesting, the way this is all put together. It says this, the, the whole vision, all that he's getting is connected to Zerubbabel. Okay, he's the governor of, of Judah during this time, even though this is happening in Zechariah, same governor, same time, right? And, and it's connected to rebuilding the temple. The angel is saying that he was going to finish the temple through the abundant supply of the Spirit of God and that everyone would know that God's hand was in it. So the oil for the lamp, okay, that's coming in is associated with the Holy Spirit, right? Who lives within us. That's the idea. So military might, human manpower, that could not accomplish this without God's spirit and his light. So it's in this passage where we get this wonderful prescription on how to get things done. It's Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. So he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And there it is again, the Lord of hosts. It's suggested by many scholars 
that those two branches, those olive trees, refer to Joshua, the high priest, and Zerubbabel, the governor, the king, which represents the role of Christ, who is both priest and king. Really interesting, isn't it? And so here, we're reminded through this message to Zerubbabel, right, that God's power must be present, and that only comes through uh, the Spirit. And now think about Zerubbabel, right? He's the governor. He's already laid that foundation. He's been hanging around for 15, 16 years, and now this message to come back and rebuild it, and now word's going back to the king. And what he is thinking is this, right? What, what, what is going on? How am I going to do this? Haggai wants him to go, you're not doing it. Let God do it. So the same spirit who enabled Moses, right, and the elders and all them to lead the people through the wilderness, the same, the same spirit who, who with, was with Joshua and the people of Israel when they conquered that promised land, the same spirit who enabled Solomon to build that first temple is the same spirit who is going to enable these Jews to finish rebuilding the temple. And we have that same spirit today, folks, same one. He's within us, and the church is to trust in the power of the Holy Spirit to do God's will. I read a quote from A.W. Tozer, and it's frightening. It's a frightening thought, but he says this, if God were to take the Holy Spirit out of this world, much of what we're doing in our churches would go right on, and nobody would know the difference. That probably is very true, (laughs) right? Largely. And that's frightening, right? That, that the Holy Spirit wouldn't even be present, but we would just be doing these programs and these things, doing it by our strength, doing it by our power, and no one knows the Spirit left. I don't ever want to be a church like that, right? When we're here, I want to know God is doing the work, and we are just trusting in Him. And when people leave, they should be going, yeah, the Holy Spirit was there, <laughs> right? Not this happened or this happened or that happened. The Holy Spirit was presence, present. And are we really relying on the Spirit today to do His work? Right? We read about these frightening things happening in the world. I'm not frightened. I'm not frightened. I trust in the power of the Spirit. We just got to trust in Him. It was King Solomon who said, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. So look at that last admonition in verse 5, though. Going back to Haggai, he says, do not fear. Do not fear. You know, the writer of Hebrews quotes Deuteronomy 31.6. Told you that passage we were reading uh, from and when he quotes it, he says this in Hebrews 13, 6, We may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Right? He's quoting the whole promise. I'll, I'll be with you. I'll never leave you forsake you. Be strong. Be courageous. So he's with us. What can man do to me? The knowledge of God's presence not only enables us to accomplish his work, it provides us courage to do it, right? One of my favorite verses on on. Uh, on fear, really, overcoming that is Isaiah 41, 10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Do you look at all the eyes in that verse? I am with you. I'm your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you. And then what's he do all that with? My righteous right hand. Where does Christ sit? The right hand of the Father, you bet. And he's with you always. So we have nothing to fear. We have nothing to fear. God's past and even present promises, they provide great, great encouragement for us. But there's also great encouragement that comes from God's plans for the future. And that's what he ends them uh, ends uh, um, with this thought. Look at verse 6. There's fascinating stuff here. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more, it is a little while, I will shake heaven and earth, the sea and dry land, and I will shake all nations. Stop right there. 
Now, remarkably, when you read those verses, um, uh, a lot of people have some doubt as to what this is referring to. Is it referring to political events in Zerubbabel's day, right? That he's going to shake uh, some of the nations, or, or, or is he talking about distant future time? I mean, certainly some of what Haggai's talking about will be in Zerubbabel's day, because even as we go ahead to the end of the chapter, we can see that he's speaking to him specifically about some things. Um, and certainly even looking at history, a lot of shaking was taking place, right? The Persians were ruling, but that was very precarious because who was attacking them? Oh, the Greeks, right? And they were being conquered by, uh, by them, and slowly over several battles, the Battle of Marathon and Thermopylae, those are famous battles, but eventually they were conquered by the Greeks. But we should always interpret Scripture with Scripture, and the writer of Hebrews quotes this verse, and he applies it to the end of the age, okay? And I want to take you there. It's in Hebrews chapter 12. So now we're going to the New Testament, and you're going to the right. Um, Hebrews chapter 12, near the end. Hebrews chapter 12, and in chapter 12, it's a very interesting chapter, um, the writer of Hebrews is recounting that time when God came down to, the, to Mount, the Mount Sinai to deliver the law, and all the children of Israel were around the mountain, and he's recounting sort of the, the fear and dread that they were having at seeing the power of God, hearing the sounds and all those things. He says in verse 18, you've not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire and to blackness and darkness and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. He's, he's like, remember that mountain? The people didn't even want to go near it. They were so frightened by what they saw, so frightened by what they heard. They said, Moses, you go on up. <laughs> you go talk to God. We don't want to have anything to do with uh, that. Okay, he's recounting uh, that mountain, and then he's recounting what those people did. Those same people who were so fearful of God as God delivered the law refused God. They didn't listen to his law, right? And so what God to do? God destroyed them all, every last one of them. All of them were killed in the wilderness as they walked for 40 years. It was their children that inherited the land. God judged them. And that's what he's talking about in verse 25. See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, right? Those people, right, they didn't listen to God when he was on earth speaking, and he judged them for it. What about now that God speaks from heaven and you refuse to listen? What's he going to do with you? Verse 26, whose voice then shook the earth, but now... He has promised, saying, yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now, this yet once more indicates the removal of those things that are being shaken as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. The point here is that everything that's not established, okay, in God's kingdom is going to be shaken. Everything. It's going to be destroyed. And what did Jesus come preaching? He came preaching the kingdom of God. And you can read about it, but Luke t mentions it, that the law and the prophets, right, they were, they were speaking until John the Baptist. And since that time, and the kingdom of God coming, and that being preached, everyone's been pressing into the kingdom. And that's important because everything outside the kingdom is going to be shaken. That's the idea. Okay, All be who belong to the kingdom belong to a kingdom that can't be shaken. And that's how chapter 12 ends, chapter 12, verse 28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God's a consuming fire. I love that. 
God's going to shake heaven and earth and the sea and the dry land. And that is all talking about the future. We know that from Matthew 24, right? We did that a little while, while back. Jesus is talking about when he will return, when he will return for the second coming to judge the, the nations. And in Matthew 24, verse 29, it says this, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be what? Shaken. There it is. Destroyed. God is going to be doing... So this, this is immediately before the second coming of Christ. Okay? He's coming to judge the nations, but he's going to come up and set up his millennial rule on earth. That is the idea here, okay? And this millennial kingdom will be accompanied by a millennial temple, but the shaking has to take place first. So I believe that he's talking about a future, yet future shaking in verses 6 and 7, right? Once more, it's a little while. It's going to be off. I'll shake heaven and earth, the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations. But notice going on, and they shall come to the desire of all nations, And I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. After shaking all those nations, we're told that they shall come to the desire of all nations. And again, there's many different um, opinions as to what even desire of all nations refers to. Some think that, well, because it's literally translated the desirable things of the nations. So some believe that, It refers to the silver and gold mentioned uh, there because nations don't desire Jesus. They desire wealth and power and things like that. Or maybe they think it refers to a people. Is it the Jews or is it the church, right? Some think think it's it's Jesus, right? Well, I believe it's Jesus. That has actually long been the traditional understanding of it. Charles Wesley wrote a very famous Christmas song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And we sing it probably every year. And in there, is a verse, come desire of nations, come, fix in us thy humble home. See, Jesus may not be the desire of nations right now, but Jesus will be the desire of nations then. He's talking about when he comes, right? The millennial kingdom. And during his millennial reign, we're told, you can read uh, Ezekiel uh, 40 to 48, Isaiah chapter 60 are some of them where you can read about the millennial kingdom and the millennial temple, and we're told there that, um, that the nations of the earth will bring their wealth into the holy city. It will come to Christ. So it makes sense that he's saying the silver is mine and the gold is mine. It's all coming to me, right? So they shall come to the desire of all nations. And he says, I will fill this temple with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Now, the temple that the Jews were working on at the moment didn't look very glorious, it's known as Zerubbabel's temple because he's the one in charge as they're building, right? And it eventually became uh, Herod's temple, right? Herod just sort of added onto it, made it more uh, glorious. But the Jews always considered Herod's temple the second temple. So it was into that temple that glory came. Jesus came into that temple. That's the same temple, right? And we're told in John 1:14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And even an infant Jesus was brought into the temple. Do you remember he ran into Simeon? And Simeon declared what he had seen. In Luke 2.32, he says, A light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. So certainly that temple ended up having glory enter it. But Haggai, I believe, is looking even further ahead. 
I think he's looking further ahead to the millennial temple. And verse 9 is the main reason. Verse 9, the glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace. See, I think it's the, the, the latter, latter temple, the millennial temple, because ultimately Christ will reign there. God's glory will fill it. There will be peace. There wasn't peace after Herod's temple. That was even burned down, right? And Jews were massacred. But there will be peace. We're told in Ezekiel 43, verse 5, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. This is Ezekiel getting a vision. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. That temple will be filled with God's glory. But the Jews at this time, they lived in a turbulent time. They lived in a difficult time. And the work that they were doing seemed seemed worthless in the midst of what was going on. But if they could have just a bit of vision, okay, if they could just see ahead, they would know that there is a time of peace coming. And I think that's what Haggai is trying to give them. Listen, if you could just see ahead, right, there is coming a time that this same temple is going to lead to this other temple where God's glory will literally fill it. So we just be faithful to do it, right? Be faithful to build it. Listen, our, our futures, we're, we're working on things. A lot of times we just, we are working um, through difficult things and we just don't know what they're going to all add up to. We know the very end, but we're more concerned about our little, our little lives and our little worlds, aren't we? We have a quote that hangs in our dining room from Corey Tin Boom. It says, every experience God gives us, every person he puts in our lives is the perfect preparation for a future only he can see, Right? You have to trust God that he's doing, he's, he's doing the, what he knows to do, right? He, he has the whole plan. He knows what he's doing, and we've got to trust him with it. And the only way to do that is to let his spirit do the work. And these people are giving a bit of a glimpse, right, from Haggai. Listen, there's going to be future glory attributed to this work. It doesn't look glorious now, but it would just be faithful here. And that glory will be peace. You will have peace, and you can have it even now. Isaiah 26.3 says, You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Yes, you can have perfect peace. How can we have it? Trust in him, relying on him, in his spirit, in his power, in his might, and not our own. We know that the work God is accomplishing now is, is leading to a future glory. We know the end. And listen, folks, we belong to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Amen. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word to us today, the encouraging words of Haggai coming down through the centuries to to us, and we find encouragement from them, Lord, because the same truths apply apply to us. We we are uh, fragile human beings prone to uh, worry, prone to be disillusioned and discouraged, yet you're with us. And while you're with us, who can be against us, Lord? Uh, We just love you. We praise you. We thank you for your word to our hearts, and I pray that you would just remind your people of the great power that dwells within them as your spirit dwells within us. We love you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.